Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today, we are going to share the story of the first NBA merger. Most fans of the NBA and NBA history are familiar with the NBA-ABA merger, and I've talked about it on this show as part of episode 29, in case you want to go back and check that out. I go in depth in that episode on how the old ABA and the NBA decided to merge into a single league under the NBA name back in 1976. But today, I am going to talk about the first merger that the NBA was a part of which directly led to the name NBA. When you study the history of how the NBA got started, there are a few times when they could have failed. Professional basketball was not as popular back then as it is today. In the mid-1940s, when the NBA started, its popularity was less than football, baseball, hockey, boxing, and horse racing. More people could name the winner of the Kentucky Derby and who the heavyweight champion was than even name the team from their own city. The NBA was fighting an uphill battle for attention and ticket sales. It was not a given that the league would survive and thrive as the top basketball league in the whole world as it is today. If not for some key decisions at important moments, the league would not be here today. This is the story we are sharing. So in order to tell this story properly, I need to take you back to the year 1946. This was the summer that the NBA organized with play to begin in the fall of that year. For its first three seasons, the league went by the initials BAA, the Basketball Association of America. For that very first season, they had 11 teams signed up in mostly large eastern cities. Here are the names of the 11 teams that played during that very first year. Only three of them are still playing today. In the Western Division, we had the Chicago Stags, St. Louis Bombers, Cleveland Rebels, Detroit Falcons, and Pittsburgh Ironmen. Every one of these teams went out of business at some point in the early history of the league. In the Eastern Division, we had the Washington Capitals, Philadelphia Warriors, New York Knicks, Providence Steamrollers, Boston Celtics, and Toronto Huskies, the only Canadian team that first year. The Warriors, Knicks, and Celtics are the only three teams still playing today from that very first season. The BAA struggled for solid financial footing. They had teams in some very large cities, and they counted Madison Square Garden in New York and the Boston Garden as two of the league's arenas, and they were two of the most prestigious arenas in the country. But they began to lose money quickly. Professional basketball just was not that popular, at least not in the late 1940s as I mentioned. At the same time, there was another major professional league already operating, mostly in the Midwest, but they were operating to modest success. 
And when I say success, I mean that they were not losing money, at least not all of them. Remember, in the 1940s, nobody was getting rich in professional basketball, not the owners and certainly not the players. Back then, if you had a college degree, you could make more money working in a corporate office than running up and down a basketball court for a paycheck. And for many players back then, that's exactly what they did. I'll just give you one example. Back then, there was a player named Bob Curlin who played his college ball at Oklahoma A&M University and won two NCAA titles. He was a rival to George Mikan. Curlin was a gifted seven-footer with athleticism and skill. Anybody would have gladly taken him to be part of their team. But Curlin realized that he could make more money by taking a corporate job with Phillips Oil and then playing for the company-sponsored AAU team as an amateur on the weekends. This allowed him to make more money than a professional basketball player and it allowed him to play on the Olympic team a couple of times in 1948 and 1952 since he was being paid as a salesman for Phillips Oil and not as a basketball player. Now, back to this other league that was playing in the Midwest. They were called the NBL, the National Basketball League, and they operated in small to medium-sized cities. And this is a great strategy for them. They played in towns where there were very few other entertainment options, which led to a lot of fan support since there was not much else to do without driving a really long way. I give these guys a lot of credit for that strategy. Here are some of the teams that play in the NBL. Now this is not a comprehensive list, this is just some of the names that stuck out to me. You might even recognize a few of them. The Akron Wingfoots, Anderson Packers, Tri-Cities Blackhawks, Chicago American Gears, Dayton Metropolitans, Fort Wayne Zollner Pistons, Indianapolis Kotskis, John Wooden played for that team, Minneapolis Lakers, Oshkosh All-Stars, Rochester Royals, Syracuse Nationals, and Waterloo Hawks. When the BAA announced itself as a new league, it put a scare in the NBL. The two leagues only overlapped in one city. They both had a team in Chicago. But other than that, they played in completely separate cities. So it wasn't like they were competing for the same fans. But what they were competing for were the players. The first player that brought this into sharp focus was Hall of Famer Dolph Shays. When he came out of New York University, he was being pursued by both the New York Knicks of the BAA and the Syracuse Nationals of the NBL. Shays asked the Knicks for more money than they could afford under the salary cap. So when the Knicks refused, Shays signed with the Syracuse Nationals since the NBL had no salary cap. And this was a big loss for the BAA. The BAA was desperate to have either some of the NBL players switch to their league or have entire teams switch to their league. Either option would bring in new revenue streams. But something needed to be done because otherwise the BAA was not going to survive. Despite the fact that they were operating in mostly big cities with lots of potential fans, the BAA had lost half a million dollars in each of their first two seasons. After that first season with the 11 teams, four of them went out of business. So they had to add a new team just to keep it even with an eighth team league for season number two. But everyone knew that this was not sustainable. This led to a secret meeting between the president of the BAA, Maurice Podoloff, and the owner of the NBL's Fort Wayne Zollner Pistons, Fred Zollner. The Pistons were probably the most financially secure team in the NBL. They were popular, they won lots of games, and they had a very strong fan base in northeastern Indiana. Podoloff flew to Indiana for this secret meeting at Zollner's house. Nobody could know this meeting was taking place or else the other NBL owners would erupt in anger. 
Kapodiloff presented Zollner with a plan to have the Pistons switch leagues and join the BAA. Zollner didn't need the BAA as much as the BAA needed Zollner. But Zollner really liked the idea of seeing his team's name on the marquee of the world-famous Madison Square Garden. Podoloff also inquired about Zollner's opinion of other NBL teams switching leagues, particularly the Minneapolis Lakers and their superstar, George Mikan. The BAA really wanted Mikan in their league since he was a player who sold tickets. In terms of marketing and ticket sales, Mikan was the Michael Jordan of his day. He was the kind of player that every basketball fan wanted to see. So after a bit of negotiating, Zollner agreed and the Pistons signed on to join the BAA for the 1948-49 season. And that was the first domino to fall. Very quickly, the Indianapolis Kotskis also decided to switch leagues. Podolov's next target was the Minneapolis Lakers and George Mikan. But they were happy where they were and initially told Podolov that the Lakers would stay put in the NBL. After all, the Lakers had just won the NBL championship and felt really good about their current situation. The Lakers' leadership was also concerned with being sued if they switched and decided they did not need the extra drama. The third team? Well, that was a little different. The Rochester Royals contacted Podoloff and asked if there was room for them to join the BAA. Podoloff wasn't sure at first because Rochester was a small city in the state of New York where the Knicks were already playing. But back then, Rochester was a 10-hour drive from New York City. So Podoloff agreed, and the Royals were the third NBL team to switch to the BAA. And once the news spread that these three NBL teams were switching leagues, the Lakers changed their mind, recognizing that the future of professional basketball was now in the BAA, and they better join up. So now four teams had decided to switch leagues. The BAA had a press conference on May 10, 1948 to announce the new league realignment. The NBL threw a fit at the idea of losing some of their best teams to the other league. So as you can imagine, they threatened to begin filing a series of lawsuits against the BAA for taking four of their teams. The BAA now had to figure out what to do if the NBL began filing those lawsuits. However, in the meantime, both leagues needed to play some basketball or else nobody was going to make any money at all. So for the 1948-49 season, the BAA increased from 8 teams to 12 teams, with 3 of the 4 new teams being financially stable. It added a new level of stability to the entire league that was only just 3 years old. Had these 4 teams not switched leagues when they did, it is very possible that neither league would survive long term. It turned out to be the best thing for both leagues. But this is not the merger yet that I promised to tell you about. This is just four teams switching leagues. Both leagues operated separately that following season. It is a year later that the merger actually happens. And I'll share the rest of that story right after this. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome back to the show, and let us keep going with the story of the first NBA merger. Four NBL teams have just switched leagues and joined the BAA, and there was an adjustment period for those NBL players coming into the new league. Mikan explained that he had to start pacing himself. The NBL played only 10-minute quarters but the BAA played 12-minute quarters. 
Those extra 8 minutes of game action could put a toll on a guy like Mikan, who was used to playing the entire game on a regular basis. But the Lakers and Mikan figured things out as the Lakers won the 1948-49 BAA Championship, their first year in the new league. They definitely made a splash. However, back in the NBL, they struggled through that season with four of their best teams gone. The Waterloo Hawks and the Denver Nuggets went out of business before the season even finished. By the way, these were a completely different Denver Nuggets than the team that plays today. The rest of the league was barely hanging on. The NBL's threats to sue the BAA became real. So Podoloff spoke with the other BAA owners and came up with an amazing solution. He sold them on the idea of allowing any NBL team that wanted to to join the BAA for the upcoming 1949-1950 season in exchange for them dropping all lawsuits. Joining the BAA is what all those NBL teams at this point really wanted anyway, so they made a deal. Also, Podoloff argued privately that most of these teams would probably go out of business after only one year. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.